Welcome to Technoviews, a new series of interview videos and podcasts with major figures in the humanities and social sciences on topics at the intersection between technology, society, and culture in Asia and the world. My name is Joseph Bosco. I'm a research associate in the Department of Anthropology at Washington University in St. Louis. The subject of today's podcast is Science and Technology in China. Our guest is Professor Susan Greenhall, the John King and Wilma Cannon Fairbank Research Professor of Chinese Society in the Department of Anthropology at Harvard University, and the co-editor of the recently published edited volume, Can Science and Technology Save China? Hi, Susan. Welcome to Technoviews. Well, hi, Joe. Thanks very much for having me. Professor Greenhall is a prolific author, and let me just mention her two most recent books, Fat Talk Nation, The Human Costs of America's War on Fat, published in 2017, and Cultivating Global Citizens, Population in the Rise of China, 2010. But now I want to focus on your new book, Can Science and Technology Save China? How did the idea for this book come about and what was your goal? This idea has been germinating for a very long time. When I was working on the one-child policy for many years, I came to see that Chinese science was just, the history of Chinese science was fundamental to the making of the one-child policy in a way nobody had realized. And as I continued to work on those topics, I realized that just science and technology just profoundly important in China, important to the state, they form a mode of governance. They provide a dream that the state can sell to keep the population happy. But there's been very little academic research on these topics, at least in the social sciences. Um, recently, though, a newer generation of anthropologists has begun to work on these issues. So I saw an opportunity to bring a group together and to begin to think together and to begin having these conversations and hopefully to create knowledge that begins to be cumulative. And the big question was, how different would China look if we gave science and technology its due? Mm -hmm. Can you elaborate on the word save in the title? Can science and technology save China? Save China from what? <laughs> Great question. You know, as a China specialist, Joe, that this phrase of science and technology saving China, is at least 100 years old and a very fundamental concept in China. Back in the early 20th century, when it was first introduced, the meaning was to save China from the depredations of an imperialist West. But the term has taken on new meanings as the decades have passed. And now I think science and technology are being called on to save the Chinese people, to ch save the economy and the environment from 40 years of far too much focus on economic growth at any cost. So it's a very provocative question. And I think the notion of can science and technology save China will also resonate with people who are not intimately familiar with these details of Chinese history. And you mentioned in the book that, uh, th that in China, and, and I quote, state, market, science, and technology are, 
are tangled tightly together to form a knot of governing logics, practices, and institutions, unquote. Can you compare this tangle with the tangles or lack of tangles in other countries, say the US or France? That's a great question because it's only through comparison that the distinctiveness of the Chinese case comes through. In the US, the case most of us are familiar with, these sectors, namely state, economy or market and science and technology are formally independent and ideally they're independent. There's a strong norm anyway, that science should be neutral, objective, and unbiased by political influences or commercial influences. In China, there's no such norm. In China, the party mains, maintains extreme formal and informal controls over market actors and over science and technology. And on top of that, in China, corporations routinely seek to influence science and technology through funding various projects. And what I discovered is that this kind of funding by industry is just considered business as usual. It's not contested, it's just the way things are. And it's the way things are because the government has supported that. Since the early 80s, right after China opened up after Mao's death, the policy was the marketization of everything, including of science and technology. And science, medicine, technology were all urged to get funding from the market. So in China, there's a very tight knot of power in which the party state is the dominant force. And of course, the balance of power among these three sectors shifts over time. But these days with Xi Jinping in charge, the party state has just acquired, accumulated extreme amount of power over the other sectors. Now, you mentioned in the book that, that China has a scientific culture. You comment that post Mao, China practically worships the state-sponsored religion of science and technology, which I really like that, that phrase. Um, is this changing our pollution and food safety problems, making people more skeptical of science? Or is China, China's increasing prowess and power in the world making scientism stronger, actually? I think both of those are happening. And it might be useful to step back and ask, why is there this religion of science? And the reason is, when the government shifted in the late 70s to reform and opening up, to marketization, the old beliefs in socialism and in Mao Zedong thought just were, were collapsing. And so this is basically the only hope that the Chinese people have for the future. Um, I think that things are changing in both directions. I think there are contradictory changes underway. For sure, the Chinese people are incredibly proud of their nation's accomplishments recently, especially in high tech, in 5G, in AI, other fields like that, and well, they might be. At the same time, recently, the state's effort to use high tech solutions to solve China's worsening environmental problems have created a lot of problems, have not worked in many cases and created a lot of fallout problems. And people are beginning to be skeptical about that. But I have never seen anything like a widespread 
or even more localized sense that science and technology themselves are the problem. It's more a critique of a particular technological solution. Right. And, and you point out in your introduction that most of the people studied in the cases in the book uh, continue to have faith in science, but the results have not lived up to the, to the promise. They themselves recognize that. The, the, many of the policies were ineffective or even harmful. So why do people continue to have that faith in, faith in science? Because these outcomes are already narrated, so the science itself ends up being unchallenged. The narration, the story about these failures is never this failed because the science was flawed, or this project did not succeed because the party was too intrusive in trying to manage the science. It's that, well, the weather was bad that month or some other explanation or, you know, the local cadres interfered with the implementation of this project. So it's really the contrast to the West in this technicistic culture is really extreme and it's so important because in the West after post-world, after World War II, and we watched the mass extermination of a whole vast group of people, there was a tremendous backlash against that and deep concern about high-tech solutions. Um, And that never happened in China. So there's this still kind of rosy glassed optimistic sense that these are really modern solutions. They're gonna bring China into the modern world and help boost China's position in the global economy. Okay, very good. So the, the book has eight chapters, which are like different cases. And chapter six in the book is your chapter on how obesity research in China was, we, we could say, captured by multinational corporate interests that sell fattening food, um, an issue you already alluded to. You, you show that these companies were able to steer Chinese policy towards emphasizing exercise to fight obesity rather than eating less sugar. Your point is that societies need ethical rules to prevent companies from influencing research and national policies. You say at one point that in China, and I quote, science ethics are underdeveloped, unquote. Do you see science ethics as something that falls on an undeveloped versus developed linear scale, or is it something that's more complicated than that? That's, that's a really interesting question. Your read of that term made me smile because I did not intend the term underdeveloped to be interpreted as belonging on a continuum from undeveloped to developed or even overdeveloped. By by underdeveloped, I mean underconceptualized and undercodified. And my point there is that um, there's been very little discussion of scientific ethics, whatever the state has authorized for discussion, like plagiarism is wrong, editing gene embryos with CRISPR, those things are wrong. But there are many areas of science ethics that the state has not authorized discussion of. And so nobody discusses them and everybody makes up their own ethical rules. So what I meant is under discussed, under conceptualized, under formalized. And in that context, Chinese researchers, experts need to draw on their own ethical ideas 
which come from group ideas, they come from traditional Chinese culture, to come up with ethical solutions that, um, that they can live with. So actually, you're right that a larger point is that societies need these ethical rules. But what I intended to emphasize was, isn't it interesting that transnational companies like Coca-Cola can essentially take advantage of these Chinese researchers accessing Chinese culture to sell bad scientific ideas to China. And the Chinese people won't even know that these are bad ideas and they can justify them using their own ethical notions. So lots of interesting ideas there. There's, there's a lot of moralizing about how unethical Chinese science is. In the West, there's this you know, dominant media narrative. Chinese science is always already unethical. But if, you would, if we look at how actual actors in Chinese society deal with these ethical questions, things are a lot more complicated. Right. And, and several of the chapters in the book uh, uh, address those issues, in, in particular uh, Priscilla Song's chapter. Yes. Yes. Arguing, talking about how Chinese researchers trying to sell a stem cell transplant technique fight back. <laughs> by trying to develop their own means of creating an ethical and a practical solution. And they don't necessarily persuade anybody, but they sure try hard. Right. So you, you point out that uh, in the book that science is contextual and you say that, I quote, Chinese science is distinctly Chinese. Can you give some examples of what you mean by that? Are, are there say, five characteristics that one could list that we could say that makes uh, science Chinese or is this too essentialist of you? Well, it's very important to get the language here be right because when you say to a Chinese researcher that Chinese science is distinctly Chinese, he or she is going to get very offended and say, that is wrong. We do international science. This is the best of international science here. But what you and I would say as social scientists is that in every national context, science bears the distinctive marks of the local context, political, economic, the sociocultural. So not only is Chinese distinctive, but American science is distinctive. Mm -hmm. Having said all that, I can in fact, um, suggest a few of the attributes. And again, because it's contextual, these conditions change over time. So for the 2010s, and based on the work of my colleagues and myself, I would throw out these, um, these aspects of Chinese science that are distinctive. First of all, science and technology are first and foremost tools of the party state. <laughs> Scientific ideas and practices are introduced in top-down fashion, and the state determines the topics, the main questions, funds the work, and hires most of the researchers. So that's really very different from elsewhere. Um, a second attribute is that in Chinese science, politics is ever-present. And one thing that I discovered in carefully reading through all the essays of my colleagues was that in every case, negotiating with agents of the party state 
whether a local party cadre or a state official is a routine part of making science and technology in China. That's kind of interesting. Mm -hmm. A third one is one you mentioned, which is the science tent that culture tends to be scientistic and technicistic. That is to say, there's a belief in the widespread powers of these domains to solve China's problems. A fourth one, and I haven't mentioned this, is that science is ultimately a practical thing. In the West, we think of science as being about discovering the truth. What's the best idea? What best accords with empirical reality? In China, it's about let's find a solution to this practical problem. Science is about finding practical solutions to real world problems, not about the truth. That kind of blew my mind. Um, and the last one I'll just mention since you asked for five <laughs> <laughs> is that science and notions of truth in China are deeply influenced by social relations that are called guanxi connections, personal connections, and what counts as the truth. Um, Kate Mason's chapter does a beautiful job on this. What counts as truth is deeply colored by who you're talking to, what other connections they have, what norms of good and bad truth are considered valid. So those are just a few, and I would really look forward to others um, taking up that project of asking what is it that's distinctive about Chinese science? I think it's very productive. Great. Uh, there's been a lot of concern in the US press in the past year, or even actually in the last month, uh, over the competition with China in science and technology, and especially the role of the state in that competition. Do you have any thoughts on this? How much of this is discomfort over the rise of a national rival? How much of it is racist? How much of it is exaggerated? I absolutely have ideas about this. I, <laughs> <laughs> every day in the paper, I, I become very agitated reading these narratives. I think that selective American concern about the powers of Chinese technology, science and technology, is, is legitimate and is really important. There are areas in which China is fast becoming a global rival. If it hasn't already dominated the US, areas like AI, 5G, material science, decision science, and we can go on and on. So those are areas of great rivalry and because the state has so much resources to pour into this, which is its primary strategy, for pushing China forward, we should be concerned. On the other hand, there are profound weaknesses in Chinese science that we need to keep in mind. And these weaknesses come through all the time in the narratives that we're reading about how China has dealt with the coronavirus and COVID-19. There were stories recently about the WHO team of scientists finally able to get to China to work with Chinese researchers to find the origin of the coronavirus. And again, China put up roadblocks everywhere and the team was being very diplomatic as it left China and reported on what it was able to accomplish. But what they said was, we are still awaiting the basic data, including data from those first patients, patient records without the names on what happened, when did they get, you know, when did they get um, infected? What were the results? So 
this is really important because of what it means, it's important for the world. Because what it means is the world may never know where this horrific virus came from. It's just a tremendous opportunity lost, an opportunity to develop new vaccines, new treatments, to anticipate the next virus. So this is a really huge issue. So, you know, a lot of the research on, on China, especially in the anthropology of China, is it, it's almost its own domain. And, and very often um, China scholars feel that, that the Chinese case doesn't really have much influence on uh, academic discussion more broadly. So I, I'd like you to maybe talk a little bit about what does your study of science and technology in, in China tell us about STS more broadly? Of course, China as a major power is of, of natural interest, but I mean, how does the Chinese case itself help us understand science and technology globally and then maybe in a more abstract sense? Interesting question, because I hear two questions here. Because STS is the social scientific study of science and technology in social context, whereas science and technology is the thing. So they're really two questions. So the we were hoping in this volume to contribute to the social scientific study, the STS. It's very difficult because STS as it's developed over the last say 50 years has been profoundly Eurocentric. And these days, sure, there are a few articles in the Western STS journals about China and other parts of the global South, but they are few and far between. It's just still very much dominated by that. And it's very interesting that overlaps with the actual question of SNT, science and technology, because China has struggled throughout its history since it embraced science and technology as its route forward in the early 20th century, struggle with the fact that it falls nearer the bottom of the global hierarchy of science. Chinese scientists are constantly, even today when they're, you know, they're just contributing in so many important areas, they're still struggling to be accepted as important players in these global fields. It's call it racism, call it ethnocentrism, all of these things, power plays continue to play out. So we're hoping very much to help put China on the map in terms of STS. Whether it will happen, I don't know, because the conversations we can have about science and technology in China necessarily are embedded in the realities of China because China is so different in its political economy from Europe and America that are the focus. My guess is that we'll still continually be um, largely ignored, but we can certainly contribute to the development of East Asian science and technology studies. And that field is growing and increasingly making an impact on STS generally. My final question, not all of our listeners are, are, are academics. So maybe could you tell us a little bit what's the relevance of this book to a larger audience beyond academia? And I should say that the book is actually very readable. It's very, very well um, written and edited, I should say. Uh, so it, it, it would be of interest to a broader audience, but why should lay people read this book and why does it matter? Well, actually the book is really an intellectual contribution, but lay people who are interested 
in going beyond the media narratives about Chinese technology as a threat. Lay people are interested in how science interacts with society in China. We'll find really interesting contributions here, incredible accounts of how, say, psychological therapists in China have taken different Western psychotherapy techniques and adapted to them to the China context and tried to share them with their clients or their patients and how the patients have taken them up and the struggles to get those Western ideas to work in the context. These have just a lot of human interest. Those should be of interest to anybody. I would also say that anybody who's interested in who is a scientist and might be going to China would be, would be, would do a, you know, would help him or herself by taking a look at this collection before going to see how radically different Chinese science is from what he or she thinks of science in this country. The other thing, so we, there are two areas that we really seek to contribute to. One is science and society. And the other is how knowledge, the cognitive core of science, how knowledge is actually created in China. And that's also a profoundly social process. So to see knowledge creators going about and trying to negotiate with local officials, it's very, very interesting. Great. Thank you very much, Susan. And thanks for listening. You have just listened to Professor Susan Greenhall in TechnoViews. I hope you've enjoyed this podcast. Please send us your comments and suggestions in our website at scitechasia.org.